Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, November the 22nd, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As is generally the case uh, these days with our Friday podcast at the moment, we are looking across the water at the state of play in the UK general election with 20 days or so to go until the election itself is held on December the 12th. Tracker polls currently show Boris Johnson's Conservatives in a pretty comfortable lead with 40% or so of the vote against 29% for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, with the smaller Lib Dems and Brexit parties both feeling the squeeze. But can we trust those polls? And what are the chances of anything significant happening to change that picture over the next three weeks? I'm joined today by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and by Dr. Kevin Cunningham. Kevin is a lecturer in politics and he's a pollster with Ireland Thinks. And in a previous life, uh, he was targeting an analysis manager for the Labour Party in the UK. And I might ask you later about what that particular job entails, Kevin. But I mean, first of all, what are the polls saying right now and can we trust them? So the polls uh, are averaging out around 42% for the Tories, around 30% for the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party are declining at various degrees of acceleration or deceleration, I guess. Um, What this, I mean, one of the most important things about UK politics is because of first past the post, geography is very important. The most obvious example of that is where you see the SNP on about 4% yet getting 8% of the seats Whereas, say, uh, UKIP in the previous election uh, got like, like about 14% and yet got a half a percent of the seat. So where the concentration of voters are is, is really, really important. Um, and that's that's quite critical for this election. And how difficult then is it to apply? I mean, let's say here in Ireland, and people talk about how complicated our system is, but one of, our, one of the things about our system is that the, the percentage of the seats, as you've just mentioned in the case of the UK, maps relatively closely to the percentage of the vote gained in the election. That's really not necessarily the case here, particularly if there may be some tactical voting happening underneath the, the hood as well. Yeah, so t- tactical voting is, is a very important part of this particular election because there's a remain side and there's a leave side. It isn't a clear contest between all the individual parties, but there Voters seem to identify more with their position on whether they uh, favour leaving or remaining in the European Union uh, more so than their party. So there's a lot of discussion around tactical voting and whether voters will actually do a lot of tactical voting. One of the things in the last general election which proved very insightful was uh, YouGov conducted a thing called an MRP, which is basically a prediction at a constituency level of what was going to happen. This uh, MRP model turned out to be very, very good. Um, How does it work? So, okay, right. Uh, so it involves a much... Buckle up, this could take some time. Yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of thing our listeners like. Okay, right. So uh, so normally a poll is about 1,000 people. An MRP poll usually has about 20,000, right? And so that means for each constituency, you have maybe 30 or 40 uh, uh, responses, right? That's not still enough to actually get any clarity or any being able to predict any individual constituency. But what the model does is effectively uh, use data from the general population to to kind of weight and predict each constituency uh, and try to understand to what extent each constituency varies 
from what you might otherwise predict. Anyway, one of the one of the most important aspects of this was that uh, in the last general election, it predicted, say, Kensington to go Labour and Canterbury to go Labour. Now, Canterbury is a seat that, uh, you know, was never Labour uh, and, and this was a 50 to one shot. It was a kind of a young constituency because it was a student, a lot of students basically living there. Kensington was obviously one which I think all listeners would probably assume, well, that would have been mad to think that that was going to go Labour. Mm. But yeah, no, it, it's a it's a it's a good method. It has limitations in some areas in terms of some parties. If if you're actually unable to predict uh, the voter, if there isn't enough data to predict what type of voter is there, particularly something like the Liberal Democrats, then you end up with um, uh, difficulties and you end up with kind of a flat distribution of vote, which means you're you're less likely to predict a higher so, support for them. Basically, as I understand, if I could simplify it, you look at the uh, global figure for the whole country and you say students are more likely to vote for this party than that party. And then you transpose that, be it students, be it unemployed people, be it pensioners and other demographic factors. You look at a constituency's demographics and you take you, you take that and you apply that that data to the constituency. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. So, so that's one part. And then the other part is is a thing called the multi-level part, which is basically saying, OK, we have a little indicator that suggests that this is... Uh, say Broxtow as opposed to Ashfield and you'll see within that sample of 40 people that all those demographics controlling the people in Broxtow are just that little bit more labour than the people in Ashfield are and so it, it kind of adjusts in that way I guess. And how much confidence is there in the uh, the the robustness I suppose of the actual polls that are being taken because there were issues weren't there in 2015 and there was a whole period around there not just in the UK but in other countries where people were calling polling into question and saying that certain parts of the population were being oversampled and certain parts undersampled and I think something similar happened to the Australian election much more recently as well. Yeah the Australian one was particularly interesting because the Australian election has mandatory voting so you wouldn't normally think that the problems were going to happen in that particular election. Um but yeah, so the, there was that in the last general election in the UK, uh, what they did was they adjusted. So 2015 was really bad for pollsters in the UK. They adjusted in 2017. What they did was is they, they looked back historically and what, what they found was that people uh, who were undecided tended towards the party for whom they preferred the leader, right? So uh, uh, a lot of opinion polling companies basically ended up overestimating the Tories because uh Theresa May was perceived at the time as being better than Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, one of the things YouGov does, which is slightly better maybe than the other polling companies, is that they adjust for political interest. So they weight according to the extent to which you are interested in politics, which is a very important adjustment to make, considering that lots of people on these polls are people who are interested in politics. That's why they signed up. Does it, Is this model now adjusted? Do we know... Well, first of all, the big question is, what is it saying? And secondly, do we know if it takes account of the enormous part that Brexit choices play in this election and the extent to which individual voters are motivated at different levels by their position on Brexit? Because that is likely to be a predictor of tactical voting and seems to me tactical voting in an awful lot of constituencies will be the key to this election. Okay, so uh, firstly, what does it say? So there's a couple of models circulating around and the consensus is really that the Conservatives are getting somewhere between 350 and 370 seats, which is... Wow, significant... 350, 370 and seats. And just to remind us, a majority is... 
326, but then you've got to take away Sinn yeah, Féin, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So 320-ish gets you there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so a significant majority. And the interesting thing is, even if you account for tactical voting, so when you look at these things on a constituency by constituency level, and you try and shift around the Liberal Democrats or the Labour Party according to whatever constituency it is, to try to estimate, okay, to what extent will this tactical voting actually influence the result? It isn't enough. There, if tactical voting really works is, out very it, effectively, there, the Tories are just that bit too far ahead. Is that because the Tories, you've answered my question, is that it's because the Tories are too far ahead or because the forces of Remain, if you like, haven't sufficiently got their shit together to run a proper tactical, nationwide tactical voting campaign? Uh, in other words, in other words, if the forces of Remain were better organised and people were more prepared to vote tactically, could it be turned around? Well, that's, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So I, I think actually at this point in time, no, I, I think even if they do quite a lot, you know, because we're currently looking at a very significant Tory majority, even if there was a lot of tactical voting going on, there just doesn't seem like there's enough. One of the big problems about this is the constituencies for which tactical voting will make a huge difference are also the ones for which there's a lot of uncertainty about who to actually vote for. You know, when, you, when you've got two, you've got the Labour and the Liberal Democrats on, you know, roughly between 20 and 25 percent in, in, in the same constituency, some of these models are saying go Lib Dem, some are saying vote Labour. And so, there's been disagreement between the various pro-Remain organisations, haven't they, about what's the best strategy in individual constituencies. So people are getting conflicting messages. W- one huge mistake in reality was for the Best for Britain campaign to come out with projections individually on every constituency, no matter how marginal it was, presuming, uh, I think quite falsely, that there would be, you know, that, that voting intention from here until the general election would be quite static. I mean, the one thing from the last general election that was completely obvious was there was enormous volatility. And, you know, the, there isn't, especially on that Remain side, there's a lot of volatility. The numbers of people that voted for the Liberal Democrats in the European elections compared to now in the national polls, you can see those numbers moving up and down. Now, the hope on Labour's side, obviously, is that this becomes an election about something other than Brexit, uh, becomes about, in their words, their radical transformation of the British economy, uh, and that therefore voters return to Labour in in some way. And we've seen a little bit of that in that their numbers have ticked up several points over the last two weeks or so, that they'll replicate what happened in 2017 with the Corbyn surge. Yeah, well, one disadvantage of the Labour Party right now, which is which is a major one, right, is this uh, demographic change that has been happening over the last 10, 15 years. So people talk about Labour heartlands and they talk about working class voters and that sort of stuff. What, what's really at its core happening is actually these, these constituencies are getting much older. So particularly in the context of the recession, lots of pe- young people from those constituencies migrated into the urban centres means the demographics of, say, Ashfield and Sedgefield and all these areas that are looking like untouchable for the Labour Party in this coming election are, you know, are very old and, and, and the appeals that the Labour Party are trying at the minute, they're, they're trying to push the NHS thing because that's the Labour Party's big thing for older voters really, right? So I guess that's their tactic but broadly speaking it's very difficult because uh, for when I've looked at a lot of data on what predicts voting behaviour in the UK right now newspaper readership is very important and how they can try and convince people who read the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph to take them seriously. I, I really don't know how that's going to happen. Well, certainly if those readers take the front pages of those newspapers seriously, they're hardly going to be voting Labour, are they? But, I mean, the, this is a product in some respect of Labour's strategic choices because Labour has elected, particularly Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn, 
has elected not really to take the Brexit thing on. I mean, uh, f- full full frontal. I mean, he, we, uh, as we saw in the debates during the week, that like he still has difficulty in articulating a Brexit policy. We see some of his own unfortunate MPs. I think it was the MP for Hartlepool, whose name escapes me, which has uh, clips been widely circulated on uh, on social media, trying and failing to uh, to convey Labour's position on. And had Corbyn taken on a full Remain position, do you think that would have made a difference? I mean, yeah, I, there's differences of opinion. Because there's a Remain majority, right? Well, well it would hardly have helped in Hartlepool, would it? No, I mean, it depends. Well, only, so you only if they're more leave than they are Labour, which is a question about, right? So uh, you mentioned something at the start about differential sort of interest in leave and remain. I, I just thought this was quite interesting. So if you go back uh, to the European elections, I would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a remain majority. I mean, you look and ask people whether they want leave or remain in the UK. It's been ahead by, by a bit for a while. And certainly the period up until, literally until that deal uh, was signed and until... Uh, the deal was signed in Liverpool, there was a lot of momentum behind the Remain side. Now it's kind of shifted in the other direction, really. Since that deal is there, presentable, there's a proportion of the population that genuinely, as Boris Johnson is campaigning on, want to see it done, just want to see this out of the way. Anything. Because they have other things that they're interested in, right? Um, And this is holding up lots of things for them. So, uh, yeah, so that group has has shifted over. And there was this kind of no matter whether the Liberal Democrats went up or, you know, the polls have kind of been quite volatile over the last two or three years. The Liberal Democrats, Independent Group for Change, uh, the Brexit Party, all these parties surged and declined. But actually, when you add up the Remain parties, if I, if I may include Labour plus the Lib Dems, Greens, SNP, Plaid, all those, uh, versus the Tories plus Brexit Party plus UKIP, it was really static for the last two years. The Remain parties were on about 55%, the Leave parties were on about 45%. That's actually changed a little bit since uh, since this deal. They're now kind of level pegging. And the ni- types of people... So in the last two years as well, the people who are more interested in the issue of Brexit were typically Remainers. Now it's kind of leveled out again. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I was very optimistic probably until about uh, two or three weeks or, or a month ago whenever that deal was signed. But, I mean, what, what you're saying, what's happened there really is that Johnson, with the deal in, in particular, has managed to regain that part of the Tory electorate which was horrified at the prospect of no deal, which was represented perhaps by some of the, the rebels in the in the parliament which has just been dissolved. And now, even though perhaps they voted Remain in their referendum, in fact, they almost certainly did, they're, they're reconciled to this being the, the best of all possible bad worlds, the Johnson's yeah. deal. I mean, the, 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 the test of this is the Brexit Party, support for the Brexit Party in the later polls is down at 4%, 5%. They're, they're, they're gone. They're dead. Yeah, he's yeah. finished them basically. Yeah, and is that huge? That must make a huge difference because well, they, they were at, so much they were at power, 25, right? 20, 25 percent. Uh, yeah. It was a question two months ago. They could they could have killed the Tory party. I mean, I remember looking at the and Democrat this was always the big strategic fear. Sorry to cut across yeah, you no, that no, the no, Tories had, yeah. which was that they were uh, that they were going to be monstered. Their own vote was going to be monstered by the Brexit party. They weren't necessarily afraid of Labour. They were afraid of the Brexit party. Yeah, no, absolutely. And now, yeah. and that's the key, if they do win this sort of majority, and let's go back for a moment to the sort of majority that Kevin was talking about a minute ago, 350, 370 seats, which would be astounding. Yeah. Astounding, Thatcher-esque majority. I, I mean, 
not quite Thatcher-esque, but yeah, no, big. Like you're absolutely right. It's certainly bigger than anything Cameron or you know, it's a it's a it's a comfortable majority. How important, if at all, is the relative popularity of the two leaders well, in all this? I was just I mean, we were definitely going that direction. I was just gonna say I in my first serious election was in two thousand and twelve, is the London mayoralty election for which Boris Johnson was up against Ken Livingston. The, the exact same election, the Labour Party were nationally, I think, around 10 points ahead of the Conservative Party. And that was even bigger in London. And yet Boris Johnson won. We had on our stats, uh, when we were looking at it, we were looking at uh, the Labour Boris vote. OK, so the amount of voters he was able to win over just through sheer charisma, right? As much as I dislike it, right? But uh, he has this broader appeal that other people don't have like Theresa May certainly didn't have but haven't his negatives gone up very substantially in the intervening period as people have learned more about him yeah yeah I mean look people people definitely have more and how much does that matter I suppose is the question yeah I mean what someone said he's the kind of uh, person who uh, stumbles upwards like it's like every bad thing seems to actually uh, improve his, his stature eventually it's one of those things I mean I think when people were talking so negatively about him up to the lead up to the deal and the deal happens, it just increases his stature because he, overall, the guy suddenly starts looking competent. Like, as soon as someone says, oh, you can't do this, Boris, well, they think, well, maybe, maybe you can. And, I mean, we were discussing uh, this week's debate on our on our last podcast on, on Wednesday and there was this remarkable phenomenon of the audience laughing at both candidates. Um, they seem to be laughing slightly and, and laughing at them, definitely not laughing with them. There seemed to be slightly more scornful laughter and there was a lot of comment about this afterwards. I'm not sure if it's relevant, but is it very much the worst of all, you know, the least bad option that people think when they look at Johnson or is there a real popularity as he seemed to have in his London mayor days? I mean, it's... It's kind of, I guess, the thing that Pat was saying. I think fundamentally, this is a Leave Remain split in the country. You know, the proportion of people who... who but the Remainers, leave, but... Yeah. And, it's and, a Leave Remain split, but the Remainers are divided. And the Remainers are divided. And, and, and But then on top of that, there's that just little edge that, that Johnson has. I mean, Jeremy's latest approval ratings, I mean, going into this election were at minus 60. I mean, it made Michael Foote look good. Speaking of Michael Foote, to what extent... Do you think the Labour manifesto launched yesterday, which is by some distance the most radical left wing redistributionist Labour document since the days of uh, Michael Foote? Do you think that can change the trajectory of the campaign? Do you think it can make it more about these central distributional questions of politics rather than Brexit? It's it's an open question. I think one of the things is every campaign has its own narrative, right? So the 2015 narrative was all about Labour are going to go into a coalition with the SNP. Good God, let's not have that, let that happen, right? The 2017 narrative was Theresa May was heading for a majority. Lots of people didn't like this. She was clearly not a very good campaigner and, her, and she collapsed and that sort of stuff. I don't know what the narrative is for this election. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but we do know there's volatility, so anything could happen. It's still early days, isn't it? Because, I mean, one of the things that I was listening to the Talking Politics podcast in the UK yesterday, and they were talking about the 1974 election. They love digging back into those kinds oh, of yeah. things. But one of the th- many things, parallels and differences that they noted was that the entire 1974 election happened in less than three weeks, the entire campaign. Like, it feels like this campaign has been going on for ages. And we long campaigns three weeks. generally should be bad for frontrunners. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was certainly disastrous for Theresa May in 2017. And the argument is that that long campaign gives something gives time for something to go wrong for the front runner. Some people say that uh, Boris Johnson's decision to accept this there's a large number of debates in this one, right? To accept that is is wrong, and actually I think it is a mistake by him because it allows Jeremy Corbyn to be up there on the stage unfiltered, right? So the the media can, uh, you know, with all respect, can filter uh, information from the public and in an environment which is relatively more hostile in terms of the newspapers in the UK towards Jeremy Corbyn, uh, it's actually, it's it's very beneficial for him to actually be up in front of telly. And is, but not if people are laughing at him and not if he is well, saying no, but, things that people disagree with, I guess. And but the, the, he's now got to defend this this manifesto or the, promote the, this manifesto, which well, I mean, I, th- I think it seems like, to me. I mean, you're I you're you're an old. Yeah. I was, if I can if I can coin the term, you're an old new Labour uh, head, and it seems to me that the reason why Labour won elections in the period when it did, yeah, though not if I'm mistaken, during the period you were working for them, that it it appealed to the centre ground. If if I may interject there, I mean, the environment in which Tony Blair won that election in 1997, after a transformation of the Labour Party having been out of power for almost two decades, after two decades of Thatcherism and a move to the third way in the centre, is entirely different from the political atmosphere in the UK and indeed in many other countries, uh, 10 years after the crash and after 10 years of austerity. Yeah, I, I I don't agree with the centrism thing, right? So I think um, I think there's a certain amount of differential turnout, right? So you need to actively when you when turnout has declined quite sharply, you know, over recent decades, and what what people need is to be, you know, excited to go out and vote. And I guess in the last general election in the UK, you know, Jeremy was just as extreme as he was in this, right? And 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 his, and the policies kind of motivated those people to turn out. But and there is a big generational divide in the UK in terms of income, mm-hmm. wealth sure. and all that sort of stuff which is which is pretty big I think. But are the f- fundamentals of the economy that different now to what they were 10, 15 years ago? I mean it, ha, are they are they sufficiently different? I mean there is presumably a reason why nobody standing on a manifesto like this has won an election in the UK so, in donkey's years. So the bet that he makes, seems to me, is that society is then changed sufficiently to make this now an an, an election winning uh, formula. I I wonder about that. So yeah, so uh, the Labour uh, tagline. So Boris is obviously get Brexit done. They're saying time for real change. And the question is, is this a change election? So if people want to change election, well, they have an option there, which is Jeremy Corbyn, right? I mean, it's a the economy in the UK has been performing relatively poorly in the last five years and, and, and things haven't been going well for a while. So I don't know. If it's a change election, there's an option there, right? Just one last question, relatively briefly, if you, if, if you wouldn't mind. In your experience, what prospect is there at all for your former colleagues in the UK Labour Party to see a significant change in those numbers enough to deny Boris Johnson a majority in three weeks' time? Uh, well, John Curtis put a 0% chance on a Labour majority. I would probably put a 0% chance on a Labour majority. But it's possible. You can't rule anything out. I mean, the volatility in elections is very exciting. I think this may be the... Sub- the surprise of this election is that it, the, when the result comes out, it isn't it isn't surprising. As in, you know, the Tories get their three hundred and fifty seats, and and everyone's kind of gone, oh, 
I mean, it is possible just to have a final word. Uh, it is it is possible. I mean, Johnson, from what we know of him, is not unlikely to have an entire closet full of skeletons that may tumble out. Whether that has any effect on the tra- trajectory of this election seems less likely, doesn't it? Yeah, well, experience suggests that it won't, but we'll see over the next three weeks. Anyway, listen, Kevin, thanks very much indeed for coming in. Thanks also to Pat for joining us today. And I never got to talk to Kevin about what a targeting and analysis manager does there, so we'll have to have, have him back in again to talk about that. But that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are most welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. 